Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Be Dratty. All right, it is, uh, we're heading to the end of summer, and they've got a ton of polos up on their website. Um, my favorite is the Liam polo. It is that classic Be Dratty polo with the pocket. And one of the neat things on the website is they have the ability to monogram it for yourself. Or for a friend. Say you want to buy somebody else a polo. Nice thing to do. Uh, what's cool is they can put your initials on the pocket. So instead of having a golf club logo, you know, you always got to worry sometimes about over-logoing. You know, if you if you got a hat on from somewhere and you don't want to wear a shirt from somewhere or if you got a belt on from somewhere, you, you don't want to be the guy that's over-logoing. So the Be Dratty monogram collection is a great way to break things up. With that, you can use right now, they've got a great sale going on. Big sale. It's 30% off just about everything on the site. So use the code BROTHERHOOD30, and that'll get you 30% off everything on the site at bdratty.com. I would recommend the monogram collection. You can monogram the Liam Polo. You just go on the site, and it is prominently featured on the homepage. So check that out. We are back with our final episode of this batch of The Yoke with Doak. So Tom and I sat down for about three hours uh, last week in Traverse City, and it just I didn't feel like it made sense to break them up and split them up over, over months. So this is your gain. I think we're going to do more since we've got the, uh, the kind of limited travel schedules in our lives, and uh, we're just going to do more virtually in the coming months. But this episode... We cover a bunch of listener questions, and as a reminder, his new book, Getting to 18, is out. Highly recommend it. Um, You can buy that at dokegolf.com. Every copy comes signed, and it is a book that you will certainly understand golf course architecture more after reading. So without further ado, here is Tom Doak. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Let's get to some listener questions here. Um, you know, you're going to love this question from Will Bardwell. Is Donald Ross overrated? Uh, no, Donald Ross is not overrated. You know, I don't, I mean, we've talked before. I don't really like ranking architects <laughs> as like, you know, not not in my wheelhouse at all. Because it's, it's, it's only about what did you do with this piece of ground? You know, Donald Ross gets... The people that don't think Donald Ross was a great architect point to the fact that he laid out 400 golf courses and obviously he didn't spend much time on a number of them. True. Maybe all he did was a routing and then turned it over to some locals to build a golf course. But Donald Ross is really good at routing a golf course. That Even that is a lot better than, you know, 
letting some local guy go out there with a bunch of stakes and hammer them in the ground and say, that's a green. Um, so yeah, there's some, there's some courses that Ross built that he didn't spend a lot of time on and that aren't as great as his other ones. But, you know, there's also, I, I would also certainly say, you know, if you judged a golf course architect by his 50th or 100th best golf course, there's only two guys in the conversation for that, Colt and Ross. There's nobody else that did that many really good golf courses. Over, you know, part of the re- partly because they were in the business for 30 or 40 years. They started early instead of waiting until 1920 to get going. Um, but, you know, partly because they had a really good operation behind them and they had other talented people who in Colt's case are more well-known. He worked with McKenzie, he worked with Allison, he worked with Morrison, he worked with a bunch of good people that, that did enough on their own too that you know who they are. Ross, his business just kept going through. So all of his associates, you never really heard their names at all because they, they did nothing but work on Donald Ross courses their whole life. So, but... You know, it wasn't all Ross any more than it's all Mackenzie or Cole or me, but Ross and the people that worked with him did a ton of good golf courses, and they are not overrated a bit. If you were given the title Golf Czar, what? <laughs> I'm what? not the Golf Czar. I thought I was. I thought that's what this podcast was all about. <laughs> what are the one or two things you would immediate do immediately? And that's from C Morrow too. <laughs> mm. I, I I honestly do not know how to answer this question. The one thing that comes to mind right away is you know, I don't think that everybody who plays golf should have to walk. But I think that the more people that did walk, the better off they would be. And the reason that a lot of people don't walk is because of golf cart revenue. So if I was a golf czar, the one thing I would do would be insist that golf courses charge for the golf cart what the golf cart really what it really costs to have a golf cart out there and the damage that it does to the golf course and let people choose whether they want to pay extra for that or not instead of jamming it in the price and insisting that it's part of the deal you know just give people a choice on whether you know you, you, a lot of golf operators would say that they are doing that, that you you have a choice to walk or not. But if you include the golf cart in the price and you're not going to save any money by by not taking one, then most people are going to take one. Just, oh, yeah, why not take one? But, um, yeah, if the economics, if you could just separate those economics out realistically to make it cheaper to play golf if you walked, more people would walk and we'd be better off. Now the golf course operators will say, Oh, but we couldn't afford to do that. You know, but they can only not afford to do that. Maybe they have to charge five, 10 bucks more for the green fee and a little less for the golf cart. 
to encourage, but but the idea that golf can't exist without cart revenue is a lie. You know, it it did fine for a very long time before there were golf carts, so it can work. It's just they've they've manipulated the numbers to make it look like it can't. Uh, Car for the course asked: Is cor- is course architecture more appreciated slash noticeable when a golfer has less clubs in the bag? Um, yeah, I think it is actually. You know, I mean, I, I play with somewhere between five and ten clubs on any given day. You know, just because it's it's lighter to carry on my shoulder, and it's you know, and you know, one of the few things I'm still in decent shape physically but one of the few things that i wind up being sore is my neck and shoulders partly from carrying golf clubs as much as i do um so i've tried to lighten it up as much as i can it wasn't i didn't do it so i would appreciate the architecture better but the one thing that it does make you do is realize that when it when a hole has bunkers that you have to carry in front of the green it's really hard when you're between a five iron and a seven iron you know it's like i can't quite carry that bunker with a seven iron but if i use a five iron and try to take something off it and i'm not spinning it so much will it hold this green and now you start to understand the importance of why having an open front to part of the green is important to people to people that can't spin the ball so much. You know, if you're a good player, you never think twice about, you know, when I'm old, I'm not going to be able to to approach the screen anymore. <laughs> but it doesn't hit you until you're like 60 or 70. But but at some point, it will hit you that, you know, when I can't hit the ball in the air and make it stop fast, this course sucks. <laughs> and a lot of courses are designed like that where they're just not thinking about those kind of players and and you will appreciate that when you have five or six clubs in the bag and have to try to hit those shots i lost my six iron uh in march of 2019 i haven't replaced it yet but what i you know i just have played so many rounds with all my evens out so i play a lot of half set golf now and one thing i noticed is like exactly that when i'm when I've got what would be a perfect eight iron into a tough pin, one of the things that I look at now is I look for contours that I can use to hit the soft seven and and run it off of. So exactly kind of what to your point, when when there are those contours present and you don't have the exact perfect club, you all of a sudden have to look for the contours to use to get it close and it makes you, you know, it makes you less of a high trajectory hit it at, you know, at, or really close to the target all the time player. Right. Funny. Ironic too. You lost the six iron. I lost my six iron out of my ping set when my, I was playing golf with my wife and son when he was like four or five and gave him the six iron to play around with and end of the round gone <laughs> we never found it so i played around a six played around my six iron for 10 years before i started throwing other clubs out too yeah it, it's been like liberating I, I i i miss it only when i'm playing like a very intense match but i play so few of those now that and i've gotten so used to like well, the other thing too that's nice about it is 
I know I get less mad at myself because I make way fewer bad decisions with half the clubs because it becomes you have a lot less decisions to make, you know, with half the clubs. Right. Blake Conant, what did you listen to on your two week road trip through the Midwest? You know, Blake, Blake works with us on construction projects and he knows, you know, like one of the great interview answers of all time, Golf Club Atlas did an interview with Kai Golby years ago. And it's like, what piece of technology has affected golf course construction the most in the last 25 years since you've been doing it? And Kai said, the iPod. Before the iPod, I had to listen to bad local music, <laughs> and it was hard to get keep in a good frame of mind. You know, I was sitting on the bulldozer all day to build stuff. So, you know, all of the guys that work for me, they listen to music all the time while they're working, and they really love it, and it, they feel like it makes them more artistic. I personally don't do that at all. You know, I'm walking around thinking about the thing the whole time instead of, you know operating something so you know I, I don't i don't even have music on my phone so so i, I listen to like local radio <laughs> and all the ups and you know doing that in june here in the united states was really interesting you know trying to avoid some of the politics but you can't really avoid it where you're going and driving through the midwest it's like you get a lot of different viewpoints on the radio in the midwest and you know, and listening to whatever music is works locally, which was the full spectrum. But I kind of like, I kind of like the random element of it a little instead of having my 300 favorite songs of all time on loop that I'll just listen to over and over again. I'm weird about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a big podcast listener. I listen to podcasts outside of uh, outside of golf, but it's the in the recent you know, weeks like with so little going on that, you know, you can tell that everybody struggled with creating, you know, content and, you know, to a certain extent, I can only handle so much of what's going on in the world. And I've been, li I've been listening to like old playlists and it's funny to think back to like what my life was like when I'm listening to these like music from when I was just out of college. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I remember what I was doing back then. It's funny how music can sometimes like, trigger moments in your life uh but another question from that all right guy i i tweaked this a little because i know you you hate the five best so i said how how would you spend 10 rounds in minnesota uh honestly a hard a really hard question for me to answer because most of the courses around minneapolis i only saw once in the late late fall <laughs> and like 25 years ago so it's so it's a silly question for me to answer really i mean i i don't i have no idea what minicata and um interlock and a couple of those other courses look like today i know they've all been worked on since yeah. i saw them but i can't compare them at all you know the the only thing i the, the only thing i drew from my from my trips through minnesota were the three courses that were really worth seeing outside the outside the the well-known ones in the twin cities were whiteberry yacht club even though it is in the twin cities but you know on the fringe north of st paul uh northland and duluth and rochester that we just worked on which is an hour or two south of the twin cities 
that Rochester's got to be one of the most severe golden age courses in terms of t- like it's elevation. A really, it's a really hilly piece of ground. I did not, you know, when they asked me to come back two or three years ago and look at it for doing work on it, you know, I think I have a pretty good memory for golf courses and I didn't, re- it was twice as hilly as I remembered. I mean, it is, there are some big slopes there. The, the par threes are interesting how they connect there the the ground how the, those are all the holes that you know they're you're always going down and up on those because of how severe the property was yeah there's i mean there's one of the more se- severe uphill par threes that i've ever seen um i'm trying to think what they are you know i i, I tend not to especially the courses that we work on I tend not to think of them in, I, I think of the routing. I don't think of like what the par threes are or what the par fives are so much. So I have to go back and think about what you're saying now. Cause I'm not really, what are the four par threes? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. What was the inspiration uh, for the fifth green at lost dunes? That green blows my mind. Exploding head emoji, just shy of rock bottom. Uh, are we talking about the fifth or the fourth? Might be the fourth. <laughs> okay, so I have to explain them both. The fourth, which I think, you know, the fourth gets most of the con. You know, Lost Dunes has a bunch of severe greens, but I remember when we were building it, Jeff Shearer, the client. I, Jeff was a. I talk about a little bit in my book. Jeff was a great, one of the best clients I've had to work with. He wouldn't ever come to me and say, "I don't like that." He would say can you tell me what you're thinking about there? Or are you sure you really want to do that? (laughs) Or, you know, just explain this one to me. So the fourth green is the one where he said, are you sure you really want to do that? And I said, well, the bright side of it is if if I build this green this severe, people won't talk about how severe the other ones are. (laughs) So Condition people early. (laughs) So... I'm going to assume that it's that, although the, you know, there's a bunch of severe greens in the fifth, which is a long par three is really tough too. And I, I will mention that just in case. So the fourth is a, it's a very short par five. If you just measure it from the T to the turning point and the green, it's like 475 yards. I think I hit like eight iron the last time yeah. I played into it. Yeah. So, you know, and it's the, the green is like right up against the fence, property fence. And the T is like back in the trees with the third green pretty much right behind it. So it couldn't get any longer. And we wanted to make it a par five instead of a long par four because we didn't, it's it's the only par five on that side of the road, um, the first seven holes. So uh, so we made it kind of a, you know, double dog leg thing. You, you know, the average person that can't reach any par five and two plays the second shot to the left around some bunkers, waste area kind of thing short of the green and then comes into the green more from the left but any good player you know even i get to where i can go for that green some of the time the the bunkers aren't that severe you know most of the stuff between the landing area and the green is like you're not going to be there unless you top a forward so um you know you're only really worried about the green and i figured okay a lot of people are going and, and the green was like the fence is behind, and there was this steep bank to the right of it coming down. And it was just all flat to start with. And I thought, well, okay, so I can, 
I'm not going to make it flat and I got to build it up a little bit so you can see it over all the stuff in between. So I'm going to build, I'll build it up and kind of just tie it into that big bank on the right. But it's still, you know, if you miss the green right, you're on a very steep bank on the rough. You don't want to be there. Uh, so the idea, uh, it, the idea for it, a little bit of the idea from it is exact is actually from a green I did at High Point, the eighth green at High Point, which had it was a two tier green with a a big low front area and then a really high tier and not much space in the back. So if the pin was in back, it was you know it was hard to fly it there. You know you wanted to think about trying to land it in front and let it run up there which is hard to do. And the thing I like about that with a par five is you can't do that with an eight iron and I might be able to with a four wood. So it takes some of the advantage away from you being able to reach it so much easier. Does Is that green similar to 15 at the North course at Stonewall? I'm trying to think what 15 is. The, the center North. line bunker hole along the prop. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I wouldn't, no, call, no I wouldn't okay. call it. You know, I was just trying to think because I mean, they had that really small the, the, little back yes, here. The green at Stonewall is, it's a really severe green. You know, that's actually Brian Schneider's green. I, I mean, I didn't tell him what to do there at all. So it didn't evolve from these other two at all. He, that's just his idea. Pretty damn wild. I think it was based on something from Pine Valley actually, but I never asked what, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's a severe back shelf. Yes. Uh, but that's, that's so much of a false front. You know, you don't, you can't really land it short and run up that thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a par, it's, a, it's, it's a not that par four. Yeah. But not, not long enough that you're really going to try that shot very much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was some of the idea behind it. And then there is like an intermediate level at the right too. So it's low left front, medium to the right. And this, severe shelf in the back that most of the people that complain about the green either the pin is there which it is maybe one day out of three or the pins down front somewhere but they they were trying for the green in two and they hit it through and it got up there and now they have to figure out how the hell to put down which is really that's the severe part is if you're in the back you got to put to the middle or the front it's really hard to do and you have to I've had people, I've had a ton of people tell me, you can't do it. You can't keep the ball on that tier at all. It's just going to get away. And then I show them what I do to keep the ball on that tier. And they're like, you know, you could putting 45 degrees to the left of where they thought to take a gentler slope and roll down there. And then they're like, okay, I never would have figured that out in a million years on my own. So, you know, it's not like there's no way to putt on that green. It is a really severe green, but it may, you know, Par there might be get there in two and three putt for some people, and you know I don't understand why that's not okay for most golfers. Why they can't? I, it's not okay because you, you know, didn't, most guys, if they if they get there in shot. two, they think they should be rewarded because they don't get to many par fives in two. And I understand that. I just don't agree. Yeah, because it, it, like if I hit a shot into a par five and I'm a hundred feet away, I realize I might not two putt. Right. It's a really severe green. It's the talking point of the golf course. Funnily enough, um, that was one of the few golf courses that wasn't shaped by the guys that work for me now. It was the client wanted a firm contract price, so we we built the course with Landscapes Unlimited, 
And this young guy named Jeremy Miller was the shaper for most of it. And he was an art student getting on a bulldozer and, you know, just loved having more freedom to build stuff instead of having grade stakes for everything and having to follow a plan really, really, I, you know, usually he would get a grading plan in detail and I would just give him a quick sketch of high, medium, low, you know, 4% in between these two tiers, go at it and I'll come see what it looks like. So he loved doing it. And then he wound up working for Jack Nicholas after that. And there's a course down the road, Harbor Shores has a really severe par five with a green really like that. That's because Jeremy Miller built them both. <laughs> it's not because Jack was trying to copy me. It's because Jeremy had already done something. And that's another, it's a par five that's pretty short. And, you know, he just kind of winged something in there. What about this Jack? And Jack said, okay, we'll work with that. What about the fifth? The fifth. So the fifth is a long par three. And uh, it's one of the more unusual greens that I've built. And that's why I thought, well, maybe maybe he is actually asking about that. So it's like a 220-yard par three if you're playing all the way back. The, the middle tees are up pretty far. Um, there's, there's a bunker right in front of it, like right smack at the front of the green. And a shoulder on the left, fairway, fairway coming in from the left, and a shoulder that could like kind of kick you into the green and then running along the left side of the green. And it runs away a little too, right? It runs away. Yeah. The green, the front of the green is high. The front behind the bunker is high. And then it drops into a swale, but it's not quite like a Biarritz. It comes up a little in the back, but not really. Most of it just kind of runs to the back. So when they put the pin in the front behind the bunker, you have to either be able to hit a shot that carries 200 yards and lands fairly soft because you've only got about 40 feet, 45, 50 feet to land it before it goes off the tier to the back of the green. Or you can try to play it to the left and leave yourself kind of pin high. Nobody ever thinks about that shot. I mean, I've been watching people for play, play it for years. They, they, you know, they hit a forward, it lands near the pin and it goes all the way to the back of the green and they're like, that's unfair. There's no way I could ever hit this close. I'm like, no, you probably can't hit it close, but you could have hit it to about 30 feet if you'd have just hit the right distance over there. And they never thought about that. And the flip side of it is any back pin is you actually only have to hit it to the front of the green yes. and have it just run back there. And yep. it's a much shorter shot than the yardage. So it's a give and take. Yes. And you know, and even if you're back there, it's just an uphill. It's just yeah. a big uphill putt. It's not like it's it's an impossible putt to get it back if you if you can't hold it. You know, the, just people people aren't used to. I mean, that's a shot that I don't put in many golf courses. But I, you know, I I'll try to do that every once in a while. I put in at least one shot that okay, if the pin's here, you have to be really good to think that you're going to pull this off. You know, the average person cannot do that. And I know they can't. I gave them some way to play the hole and still make three. Mm -hmm. But to try to make two there without making a 50-foot putt, you have to hit the kind of shot that only single-digit handicappers can play. And, and sometimes single-digit handicappers are the most 
bummed out about it because they think they hit it perfect, but they, you know, they carried it just a little too deep there and it didn't stop fast enough and it winds up all the way in the back of the green. Yeah. Um, how does drainage, uh, this is something I wanted to talk about earlier, uh, with a couple with it one example in the book uh how does drainage force you to change ideas and that's from hunter golfer well really you know you should never come up with an idea that makes it really difficult to make the drainage work like you know putting a green in a valley with all that with a bunch of drainage coming at it. So you have to shape the hell out of it to keep the drainage from running onto the green. You know, why would you, why wouldn't you just put the green at the top instead and, and save yourself the trouble? Um, again, in sand, you don't have to worry about that, but in clay, it's like, don't put the green right at the base of a hill. That's, that's going to be a problem. Stay away from doing that. Put, you know, tack it into the hill some way or, you know, keep it 20 feet away from the hill. So there's some place for the drainage to go. Um, you know, the design should be our golf course architects should be thinking about that right when they're doing the layout instead of getting to the point of, okay, now I've got the green here and I've got some drainage issues and what do I do about it? But, you know, a lot of golf course architects, they think about golf first and then it's like, how do we solve this drainage issue? And, you know, and you can, but does it really work as well as you want it to? Usually not. So, um, you know, to me, the big thing is just don't stick yourself in those positions as much as you can avoid it. And you could, you know, it's rare to be in a position where you just can't avoid it. At, at the, at the legends, you talked about using a burn that you created right. obviously uh that helped with drainage but then also served as a strategic and an ode to, to scottish golf mm -hmm. are i feel like are ditches wildly underrated on golf courses yeah it's like you can't do that anymore it's like you know people i i think most people look at it as like uh it's too utilitarian and you know it it just it isn't pretty and you know, it's the, it's the cheap way out. So you should never do the, You should never just dig a ditch to solve a drainage problem and let it look like a ditch when you're done. You should, you should, you know, make it a nice swale and have, you know, and have short grass rolling down into it on one side or something, or you should bury it all underground and, you know, have miles of underground pipe. I mean, Miles of underground pipe are just ditches that are covered off after the fact. Um, and that's the, you know, that's the standard now. Make it go, make it go away visually. And yet Oakmont still has all those drainage ditches. They're real features of the golf course. Garden City has some. Uh, they're not as deep and nasty, but they're there. Um, you know, quite a few of the old, you know, golf courses built before 1920. There's a lot of that kind of stuff still out there. And, you know, it's it's kind of got nice rugged grass growing on it now and you don't notice it so much. It, it kind of looks like it was there. Yeah. It wasn't there. It was the most utilitarian way to build the golf course. And it's just evolved into something that looks okay now so people don't think twice about it. 
A few years ago, I know there was like a, a massive water main break or something at um, right next to LACC, and it it just sent gallons of water into LACC. And uh, one of their members sent me videos. All the barrancas just filled up with water and just moved it all off the property. Yeah, and it's like, I to me, it just seems like one of the most easy ways if you've got a place that floods to get water off the place as long as it's got somewhere to go yeah i mean you know you that that example from the legends the reason it worked was the whole site was pretty flat but one corner of it was lower and it was a development and there was a there was a pond in the develop the, the low you know they had they had turned a ditch into a pond to so all the water from the parking lots and everything would go there. But that water was enough lower than where we were building that I could kind of drain everything to that and make it work. And, and there are restrictions on doing that in different places. Like, you know, in theory, the the rule of thumb for any new development is that you can't, when you build something new, the runoff from the property onto the neighbor's property can't be any faster than it is now. That's why you see like a, a shopping mall, you see all those like dirt bathtubs by the parking lot at the edge. That's to stop all the water running off the parking lot and across the street and flooding what's ever across the street. It's like it goes in there and there's one big pipe in there that's sized to let the water trickle out the same as it used to off that site. So golf courses do have some restriction there. But when you're working in someplace like Myrtle Beach that everything's flat and low, you know, generally the rules all favor just getting drainage off the property into the big, you know, huge swamps, tidal, marsh areas that, you know, it's not a problem anymore. All right. Um, level... Neeb, I think Nebraska, maybe, maybe uh, asks thoughts on enlarging greens past sprinkler heads. Um, well, the, the simple thing is move the sprinkler head if you can. I, and most of them, you know, sprinkler heads are, you know, the irrigation systems designed so that there's, supposedly perfect spacing you know all the heads are 60 or 70 feet apart and they overlap perfectly so that every square foot of the green gets watered the same it doesn't really work per you know usually there are a lot of greens that because of the shape of the green and the size of it that doesn't really work that well and they stretch so the it the, the spacing is not perfect and and you know, and then you know, when you go to the when you go to the best golf courses, it's like they don't they they never use the sprinkler system on the green anyway. They only hand water the greens if they can afford it. You know, it's like they never they use this. They just turn on the sprinkler system for the fairways, but on the greens, they they barely use it on automatic. They do it all manually so they won't overwater. So that sprinkler head being spaced five feet further out makes no difference at all sometimes. Um, now we did build old McDonald has some huge greens and there was no way that we could build, you know, that we could, that we could water the whole green, you know, the green was a hundred feet 
from left to right and 100 feet deep. So space and sprinkler heads at 70 feet wasn't going to cut it. And so we did build, you know, have there's like six or eight greens there with sprinkler heads in the green. Um, and, you know, there's a local rule if you're if the sprinkler head. Well, some of them are like tiny little heads with AstroTurf on top of them. So you don't even see that they're there. But if there's a big head that's 10 feet inside the green, you use the local rule that if that's in your line, you you move it. It doesn't really come into play very often. Um, but most of the time, you can get away with moving the sprinkler head 5 or 10 feet to get it outside where you want the green to be, and it'll be all right. But so you have to have really big greens for it to really be a problem. All right, last uh, last question Mike from Micah Puchel. I'm, I know you don't like favorites, so I'm changing this. <laughs> What's your favorite Scottish par three, four, and five? Yeah, those are the kind of questions I don't like because there's. I, I was going to say, what would you have in hundreds. your backyard? Okay. <laughs> God, I don't know. I mean. And it could be, this answer could change depending on the day of the week it is. It does. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the best par three in Scotland? The Redan is there. The Eden is there. The the postage stamp is there. Those are all pretty good. Hard to argue with any of those. Um, you know, one of my favorite holes in Scotland and I won't claim it to be the best, is uh, that first par three at Cruden Bay where you're like right by the the stream that runs out to the sea and there's this little fishing village there over to the left that you can take a footbridge across if you feel like going to get fish and chips or a soda or something. Before you tee off, you can just take the bridge over there and walk back. Um and, you know, it's just a beautiful hole isolated by dunes from everything else. There's big dunes all the way to the right of it. So it's just, it looks like just one golf hole next to the town at the edge of the world. It's such a unique setting to me that that the, the very first time I saw that, I just fell in love with it. And I, and I wouldn't say it's one of the best holes there. It's not even one of the best holes at Cruden Bay, but I love it. It's, you know, so it's favorite. That's the one that comes to mind. Par four the pit hole at North Berwick where you have to hit your approach shot over the little stone wall next to the green. You know, we've, we've done a couple of courses that have stone walls on them that we tried to use them as features of play, but not, we did, we haven't copied that hole yet. Uh, even though that hole is a way better use of the stone wall than, than the ones I've done. You know, it's just, it's so good because the hole kind of plays up the line of the wall. So the, the more confident you are to play left off the tee and close to the wall, the easier it is to hit the second shot over the wall. You know, if you, if you hit it on the left side of the fairway, it's just like, you know, you're playing, you're playing from one side of the road to a green a hundred yards away on the other side of the road along the road. You know, it's not hard at all to not hit it in the road. But if you've played, you know, if you've bailed away from the wall off the tee way right, now you're coming not straight across the wall at it, but enough that you're, anything short is going to hit the wall and rebound at you. 
and it's you know it's only three feet high i mean it's 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 so minor really but it has such a psychological impact and of course it's a it was there it was it was just part of the land when they built the golf course and they're like yeah let's just put a green on the other side of this thing like the simplest thing in the world for them to do and nothing else like it so that's always been one of my favorite holes in golf um par five i have to think harder about par fives there's not i mean there's not a lot of par fives in scotland most courses only have one or two or three um trying to think if there's one that's really not that people don't ever talk about that i really love and nothing is immediately coming to mind just like you know nothing's coming to mind that's worth discussing more than the 14th at st andrews with hell bunker where you're pretty much better off playing over into the other fairway than than trying to than trying to go straight at it like most people do um or are the sixth at Carnoustie or uh, or the ninth or the seventeenth at Muirfield are both terrific holes. Mm-hmm. One of those. All right. <laughs> That's good. Um so you we talked a lot about your book. Where uh where can people get your book? Oh, well, uh it is a limited edition. Uh I only printed 1500 copies. And actually this is the one time ever when they do, when they print books, it's like, you know, you, the printing machine goes prints 50 or a hundred pages every minute. So they never get the exact right number. They turn it off and, you know, it comes out somewhere in the neighborhood of 1500 copies. We actually got a few less than 1500 copies for the first time ever. But uh, it is a limited edition, uh, and it's a very expensive book. It costs like $350 retail. Um, so apologies for that. But, you know, that's what you pay f- to play a great golf course. So hopefully some people can justify, you know, it's not like a typical book. There's a lot more inside information about what golf course act- architects actually do in this book than than I think most any other book that's been written. So hopefully it's worth the money. And and it's large. And it's huge. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a coffee table book that's the size of some people's coffee tables. My son rasped me to no end. He's like, I don't even have a table in my apartment big enough for this. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I had to, I had to go to different reading places than normal for it. The dining room table. Um, so, but, uh, you know, I've sold about a thousand of them pre-sold and to friends and stuff. So, so there's still, there's still some available. Uh, and it's, you can only buy it from me on my website, actually two websites, either the Renaissance golf website or my new dokegolf.com website. That's still kind of a work in progress, but getting there. And, uh, you know, eventually that website will have like, I'm trying to, round up everything I've ever written, all the old magazine articles from 20 and 30 years ago and the things that I've written for yardage books and the things that I've written for forwards for other people's books. It's, it's quite a project and it's still not quite, it's, it's not all there yet, but in the next year it'll all be there. Websites aren't fun. A lot of work. (laughs) Something to do during a pandemic. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Tom.
And uh, we'll talk soon. All right, Andy. 